If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar. Why didn't Canada join the American Revolution? Did Vikings really land there? And how did it get its distinctive maple leaf flag? Well, in the latest episode in our series that tackles big historical topics, historian Donald Wright answers listener questions on the history of Canada. Donald is the author of Canada, A Very Short Introduction, and on today's episode he explores topics from the Indigenous population to the two world wars. Putting your questions to Donald was our podcast editor, Ellie Cawthorn. So thanks so much for joining me and being very brave in taking on this massive topic. So of course, this episode is called Everything You Want to Know About the History of Canada, but we should probably say as a disclaimer that that would be much too much to cover in one episode. So what we're going to do here is give you a sense of the, the fascinating topics that people could go away and research some more if they're interested in. And hopefully we'll be able to touch on some of these topics in more depth in future episodes. So um, with that out of the way, um, 
can you launch us straight in really, please, Don, and give us a sense of what's to come? What are some of the key events, the highlights of the timeline that we need to know about for the history of Canada? Wow, where to begin? <laughs> Canada is a big country physically, and it's a big mm-hmm. country metaphorically. It's complicated. Um, for your listeners, I suppose one of the things you have to know that Canada is a bilingual country. We speak French and English. They are both official languages. It's also an incredibly multicultural country. And beginning in the 1960s and in the 1970s, multiculturalism was transformed from a demographic fact into a national symbol. It was enshrined in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Indeed, it's the only such document uh, to include a statement of multiculturalism. And I think that's a very positive thing. Um, But it does have real historical and unresolved challenges. Its relationship with Indigenous peoples is a fractured relationship. Um, And we do talk a lot about reconciliation. But what does reconciliation mean? And that's an ongoing conversation. Fantastic. And I'm sure that we'll touch on some of those points more in a moment. So... Let's start at the very beginning then. A lot of people that got in touch with us with questions um, had questions about Canada's Indigenous population, and I think that that would be a good place to start. I think it's a great place to start. Um, And indeed, you could do a whole podcast just on Indigenous Mm -hmm. peoples. Uh, Indigenous peoples, of course, occupied the northern half of North America long before uh, Europeans, quote-unquote, discovered it. Um, They were a remarkably diverse group of peoples, Uh, speaking some 50 different languages. Uh, They had different social structures, different cultural practices. Uh, For example, in the far north, uh, the Inuit uh, existed in very small communities, just a a small number of families. But in the south, in what is today southern Ontario, southern Quebec, uh, Indigenous peoples, the Haudenosaunee, lived in communities of 1,500 to 3,500 people and practiced agriculture. Um, In the plains, uh, what is today Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, uh, they were a hunter-gatherer society relying on the bison. Uh, But in British Columbia, on the other side of the mountains, they were more sedentary uh, and had uh, quite a hierarchical society. So there was a lot of diversity, but when the Europeans, as I say, quote-unquote, discovered North America, began... A relationship premised in part on cooperation, but in part, too, on competition. And over the long haul, Indigenous peoples were increasingly marginalized, increasingly dispossessed. Uh, And at the top of the pod, I mentioned uh, unresolved relationships. We're still dealing with the unresolved relationship uh, between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians. So that leads me on, actually, to a question from Andrew Asquith who asks, how was Canadian land acquired from Indigenous peoples by Europeans? Well, it happened in different ways in different places, uh, but primarily through the treaty process. Um, The problem wasn't the treaties in and of themselves. They were negotiated uh, between the two parties, but the problem was the non-respect of the treaties on the part of the Canadian state. Uh, going forward into the late 19th century, into the 20th century. Um, And as a result, uh, Indigenous peoples lost land that they thought they had, or their reserves uh, were in very remote uh, uh, places, far removed from from labour markets. Um, Healthcare was was minimal, 
uh, housing was poor, uh, the training and the education that was promised in the farm in the form of farming in the prairies was was non-existent. So these treaties exist. Uh, we are bound by those treaties, and now we are trying to implement those treaties in a meaningful way and resolve unresolved land claims because they say there's one thing to talk about paper, on paper, but it's another thing in the real world. Uh, and Indigenous peoples are launching uh, ongoing land claims. But in British Columbia, it's yet more complicated. There's no single answer because in British Columbia, there were no treaties. Uh, and the land claims there are very long and complicated, but they are being resolved through the courts and through negotiations uh, and through uh, the renaming practices. Territories, places are being renamed in, in Indigenous languages, repatriation of artifacts that were taken uh, by collectors in the early part of the 20th century are being returned. Um, so the answer to that question is there's not one answer. It wasn't acquired necessarily by force, by force of arms. Uh, it was acquired by treaties or just by de facto uh, the crown asserting title. Um, and now we are trying to unravel that ball of urine. But it's a fraught process and a difficult process. Mm. So we'll talk a little bit more about um, some of the more contemporary issues facing Indigenous people. But just to go back to this point, so we've kind of skipped past one thing, which is when did Europeans first arrive in Canada? So the first question we have on this is from George Samuel, who asks, did the Vikings ever go to Canada? Yes, they did. In fact, uh, about a thousand years ago, uh, at the northern tip of what is now Newfoundland, uh, they had a settlement. We're not sure how long that settlement lasted. It was a fitful settlement, a small number of people, um, probably measured in years, not even decades. Uh, but in the 1960s, uh, Norwegian um, archaeologists, the Ingstads, Helge and Anne Ingstad, uh, uncovered the archaeological remains of, of this Viking settlement on the northern tip of, of Newfoundland. Um, and it is now a national historical site, and it is a tourist destination. Um, what's really interesting about that site, though, and the investment in, in the Viking presence and therefore extending the European presence back to, to a thousand years, is that it's obscured uh, the indigenous history of, of, of Newfoundland. Um, so obviously a bit of a, a false start almost there by the Vikings. And then we're moving on several centuries. And one of the things that people search for most is, when did Europeans arrive in Canada? So we've touched on the Vikings, but then when is the, the primary arrival of, of Europeans? Um, that would be in uh, early 1500s. Um, John Cabot uh, discovering, um, again, quote unquote, discovering uh, what is now Newfoundland. Um, and of course, they were looking for the route to the Orient, looking for the route to, to, to Asia uh, to try to find uh, a quicker route. But of course, they bumped into this la massive landmass in North America. Uh, but they did discover something far more important to Europe, and that was massive cod fishery. And when word got out about the cod fishery, the cod fishers uh, up and down, you know, across Europe began to go uh, to the great cod waters, uh, great fishing waters uh, in the Grand Bakes off Newfoundland in the 1500s. So you mentioned in your introduction that, of course, Canada is a bilingual country. 
And one question we had in from Eloise Ariel is why is Quebec still primarily French speaking? And then I think I might just broaden that out a bit to say, what is the history of of British and French colonization of Canada? Oh my gosh, that's such a big question. <laughs> yeah, I do appreciate <laughs> that. Still French speaking. Um, well, of course, it goes back to your earlier question on European presence. It was the French who first initiated settlement. The fishers who were using Newfoundland uh, were not uh, settling Newfoundland. Um, but the French uh, in the uh, early 1600s uh, did begin to settle what is now Canada, the St. Lawrence River Valley, uh, Nova Scotia, uh, had a, a French presence, what was now Nova Scotia as a French presence. And of course, those early colonies were fitful. Uh, they grew slowly, but they did put down permanent roots. Uh, and as a result, it was New France. Um, fast forwarding, uh, the defeat of, of the French uh, by the British in 1759 led to it becoming British North America from New France to British North America. But the French presence was too large, too deep. Uh, you, you couldn't expel the, the French Canadians from St. Lawrence River Valley. It had been tried, uh, an earlier expulsion of, of the French presence uh, in 1755 from what is now uh, Nova Scotia. Um, it, you know, you couldn't do that in the St. Lawrence River Valley. Um, and uh, there was just no possibility of assimilating these people, assimilating the French. Um, there were fitful attempts, uh, and, but at the end of the day, there was a process of, of mutual accommodation. As a result, we still have Quebec, which is largely French-speaking, but of course, Quebec is not only the only French-speaking jurisdiction in Canada. New Brunswick, where I live, uh, has a very large French-speaking population. About a third of the province uh, is French-speaking. The Acadians, Nova Scotia, PEI, Ontario, Franco-Ontarians, Franco-Manitobans, uh, Franco-Sasquatch, Franco-Albertans. There are uh, French-speaking communities literally across the country. But as your, as your uh, questioner says, it is primarily Quebec. Quebec really is the, the, the centre of, of French-speaking Canada. So you can very much still see the impact of that history today, can't you? I want to move on now to a question from Alex Plotkin on Facebook, who has asked about how Canada evolved from a colony to an independent sovereign state. What can you tell us about that process? Well, it evolved slowly. Let's just start with 1759. Uh, it becomes British North America. Uh, over time, there were... Uh, a number of colonies that were part of British North America. Um, and, you know, slowly they got self-governing assemblies that they could uh, raise and spend money. Um, but they were still part of the British Empire. There's still colonies of the British Empire. Uh, but in the, and there was talk of a federation in the 19th century of uniting these British North American country colonies into a united federation. Uh, but the, process really began in the 1860s, uh, and in the 1860s there was a movement to federate, to, to, to bring the colonies together into one uh, larger political unit. Um, but of course the colonies didn't want to give up their autonomy, they did not want to give up their, their uh, identity, uh, and certainly in the case of, of, of French-speaking uh, 
Quebec, it did not want to give up its autonomy, its independence, its education, its its religion, a Catholic community. And so the end result was, of course, Confederation, 1867, after a series of meetings, conferences, Confederation occurs in 1867, but it is a federal arrangement, unlike the British arrangement, which is a legislative union. There aren't provinces or states uh, in Great Britain. Uh, Canada is a federal system, meaning it has a national government, in this case, Ottawa, uh, and it has a series of provinces uh, that have real constitutional power. Now, at the beginning, it was it was four provinces, uh, but over time, it has expanded to now include 10 provinces and three territories in the far north. Uh, so Manjul Sharma asks a question on that note, which is when were all the provinces officialized? So I'm imagining that there'll be several answers here. Several, indeed. Right. So at the beginning of Canada, 1867, there's four provinces, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Ontario, and Quebec. Uh, British Columbia joins, uh, or first Manitoba joins in 1870. Uh, British Columbia joins in 1871, PEI 1873, and then the Prairie Provinces, uh, Saskatchewan and Alberta in 1905. And finally, Newfoundland joins in 1949. Uh, and, and so Canada now looks like what it is, uh, one country, 10 provinces. But what's really important, uh, going back to that original question about uh, Canada's evolution, even though Canada was independent in 1867 and other provinces joined after that, uh, Great Britain still held real constitutional power. Uh, so Canada, for example, couldn't conduct its foreign affairs until... Uh, the 1930s with the Statute of Westminster, uh, when it could, you know, negotiate country to country. Uh, That didn't happen until 1931. And then there was another quirk, uh, and that, of course, is the constitutional amending formula. And Canadians love to talk about the Constitution. It really is our... Well, we do have we do have a question in on the constitution asking just for more. (laughs) So, what can you tell us on that note? It is our national obsession. Our national conversation is the constitution. But one of the quirks of the constitution in eighteen sixties, eighteen sixty seven, is it did not have an amending formula. So there was no way to change the constitution. One way to change the constitution was to go to Great Britain. And of course, Great Britain is never going to say no. I mean, obviously, Great Britain will amend the constitution because it would precipitate a crisis if Great Britain said no. But it really was odd, this modern democratic, across the 19th century, into the 20th century industrial society, having to go to, in effect, a foreign country to ask it to change its constitution. Uh, but the reason that uh, it took so long is that there was never an agreement on what that formula should be. So one of the questions always was, should Quebec, as a French-speaking, as the only French-speaking jurisdiction in Canada, in North America, have a veto over any changes? Well, if the case can be made, it should. Should Ontario have a veto as the most populous, uh, most wealthy province? Well, again, the case can be made, maybe it should. So there was never an agreement. But finally, uh, in 1982, Constitution is patriated or repatriated uh, from Great Britain and Canada became a fully self-governing country capable of amending its own constitution. So again, that question of the evolution, Canada's constitutional evolution, there's not one answer. Mm. And 1982 is is very late in the story then, isn't it? It was a a, a real 
colonial hangover, uh, the fact that Canada could not amend its own constitution and that it took as long as it did. Mm. Um, something that several people asked us about, um, and some of them were Hugh Berkmeyer, Daniel O'Donnell and um, Klutkovit, good name there, was about the American Revolution and why Canada didn't get involved. Um, yeah. So people have just essentially asked, how cl- how close did they come to getting involved? Why didn't they get involved? And what could it have meant if they had have got involved? The United States did try briefly to liberate uh, New France, uh, Quebec, uh, to, to make it join the 13 colonies in, in a revolution against uh, the British Empire. Uh, and they did send an army and briefly occupied Montreal. Uh, they attacked Quebec, uh, Quebec City. Um, but for a whole variety of reasons, uh, they did not find a receptive population. Um, the Catholic Church, for example, was very distrustful of the anti-Catholicism coming out of the revolution. The population was likewise distrustful and it preferred to remain neutral uh, in, in, in the conflict between the 13 colonies and Great Britain. Uh, so as a result, there was not fertile soil. Uh, you know, there wasn't this, their grievances, the, Quebec's grievances against the British Empire were very different than the historical grievances uh, that the 13 colonies had. Um, where there was more support uh, for the American Revolution was in Nova Scotia. Um, but even there, uh, the support was very dispersed. Uh, it was fitful. Uh, and um, when uh, the United States did send what were called privateers, these were private ships commissioned by the government to go uh, to try to attack. Uh, they did more harm than good. They didn't generate support for the American Revolution. They actually turned people away from the revolution when they attacked, looted, burned, etc. So as a result, um, the colony of Nova Scotia, the colony of Quebec, did not join the American Revolution. Um, it's so fascinating that what you're kind of inferring there is a lot of it was to do with the feeling on the ground amongst the people rather than, say, a state decision that everybody else had to live with. Yeah, and insofar as we can measure public uh, opinion in the 18th century, which is not easy, mm-hmm. uh, there seems to, uh, again, been a sense of to try to stay out of that conflict, to remain as neutral as possible. But I want to be clear, there was some support, absolutely there was some support, Republicanism is a powerful idea. Uh, revolutionary ferment was was, was uh, certainly percolating in some areas, but it was dispersed. Uh, it was uh, marginalized. The, insofar as, again, we can measure public opinion, it was to remain neutral in that conflict. So I think this leads us on to a question from Instagram, which comes from the golden from golden, uh, yeah. which, again, is a huge question. To what extent... Was Canada's history shaped by or influenced by its relationship with the U.S.? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I referred earlier to our obsession with the Constitution. Our obsession is with the United States. Mm. Um, We are constantly uh, anxious about this tremendous force uh, to the south of us, overwhelming Canada's culture, overwhelming Canada's identity. Uh, It is something of a preoccupation, uh, a national 
collective neuroses at times. Uh, there is a strong anti-American current, especially in, in, in parts of English Canada. It's part of the Canadian identity. We are not American. Uh, we're not sure what we are, but we know we're not American. And, and, you know, that goes right back to the 19th century, this fear of the United States. Uh, there was this fear of annexation by the United States. And there, curiously enough, there were people in Canada who thought, well, let's throw our lot in with the United States, this dynamic engine to the south of us. Uh, but for the most part, they were marginalized. They were, they were not the majority. Um, Canada... British North Americans preferred to remain British. They did not want to uh, throw their lot in with the United States. Uh, they resisted uh, uh, that temptation. Uh, but there still was the reality of trade. The primary trade routes were increasingly north-south. Uh, there was the reality of uh, branch plants, American companies opening up Canadian uh, branch plants. So who owned the Canadian economy was a preoccupation. Uh, and then with the massive explosion of, of, of American culture uh, in the 20th century, especially through radio and then television and Hollywood, uh, that preoccupation of, well, what, what is our culture? What is our identity? Uh, took center stage. So you may have preempted this next question somewhat, but I'll put it to you anyway. Um, from... MHFQ, which is, did France, the US or Britain have the biggest social and cultural impact on Canada? I'm not sure you could ever measure which one had the biggest impact on Canada, because certainly Canada is the result of those three countries in many ways. Obviously, the French language. Um, we are a bilingual country, and that makes us kind of European in that sense. Um but Britain, of course, we get the English language, we get the constitutional system that we have of parliamentary democracy. The Queen of England is also officially the Queen of Canada. Um, and from the United States, look, we get our primary trading partner, we get our primary ally in world affairs, we get a lot of our culture. You know, I enjoy American television. I enjoy Hollywood movies. Uh, does that make me less Canadian? I don't think so. So France, Great Britain, United States have all impacted Canada. But what's so interesting now about Canada uh, is that we are such a diverse, such a, an incredibly multicultural society. So uh, we are being uh, shaped in, in profound and important ways by Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, by the Caribbean Basin and Latin America, uh, by Africa and African immigration to Canada. It really is a remarkable place. So it's not just this descendant of the great European empires, France and Great Britain, and it's not just a you know a pale reflection of the United States and, and its cultural hegemony. It is uh, really a remarkably diverse, multicultural uh, society. A real melting pot. So next up, I want to throw a slightly more random question at you from TW, which is about the War of 1812 um, and how significant that was in Canada. So I think a lot of our British listeners, at least, might even not know what the War of 1812 was. What can you tell us about that? Well, the War of 1812 uh, was a really a conflict between Great Britain and the United States. Um over a number of issues, 
especially relating to the ocean and, and, and oceanic law. British North America caught in fault, uh, and it became one of the key sites in the conflict between Britain and, and, and its former American colonies. In the end, British North America was not conquered by the United States, um, although I often argue that, in fact, the United States, if it did not liberate uh, British North America, uh, it did not lose the War of 1812. Uh, Great Britain never again harassed American shipping, uh, and, and America was, uh, in that sense, the winner of the War of 1812. Um, but we have turned over the course of the 19th century into the 20th century, we have turned the War of 1812 into this national moment, the birth of Canada, when Canada, this, these fledgling colonies, defeated the United States, defended its way, its British way, uh, against uh, the, the, these Republican Yankees and all the rest of it. Uh, and we've turned people like General Brock into a national hero. He led the British forces. He was killed at... Uh, in Niagara. Uh, we've turned Laura Secord into a national heroine. Laura Secord was this figure who was, there's no question she did take this walk. She did bring information to, to, to the British, but did she save British North America by communicating this information? Highly unlikely. And we've turned Tecumseh. Tecumseh was the Shawnee war chief uh, into a national hero. And what's so interesting about Tecumseh, the Shawnee war chief, uh, yes, he was fighting alongside the British, but he didn't give, you know, a spent pistol ball about the, f the fate of British North America. His primary concern was the Shawnee in the Ohio River Valley, very worried about American settlement into the Ohio River Valley. So he fought alongside the British because, you know, the enemy of your enemy is your friend. He fought alongside the British, but we have turned him magically through the mists of time and through selective reading into a... Canadian hero. And so we use these uh, figures, Brock, uh, General Brock, uh, Laura Secord, Tecumseh, as part of our national pantheon of heroes. Uh, we did actually have somebody asking for an entire episode on Lieutenant Brock, so that might have to be something <laughs> that we look into in, for the future. If I could add one more thing about Brock, uh, he ended up in British North America and he thought he was at the end of the earth. His career had you got to be kidding, I'm defending this. Uh, he wanted something more bigger and ambitious than, than British North America. Uh, and as his biographer pointed out, he couldn't wait to wipe the upper Canadian mud off his boots. Uh, but he got killed, so he never had that chance to wipe the Canadian mud, the upper Canadian mud off his boots. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. What's so interesting, too, is that once that flag on February 15th, 1965, flew up the flagpole for the first time, uh, there was this remarkable consensus in that, uh, that that was the Canadian flag. Um, and there's been no talk of changing it since. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. 
and BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another conflict that we've had a question in on, um, this question comes from uh, Jean Katzank, uh, who has asked about the Fenian raids on Canada somewhat later in the 19th century we're at now. Okay, so who were the Fenians? Uh, The Fenians were Irish nationalists uh, who uh, wanted to um, fight the crown, create the Irish Republic, uh, and they carried on the Battle of Ireland in North America. Uh, they were centered in the United States. There was some Fenian support, no question. There was some Fenian support uh, in Canada, uh, but they were primarily located in the United States. And the Fenians decided that they had to liberate uh, British North America from the yoke of the British crown. Um, But they were a small group of people. They didn't have tremendous popular support. However, they did cause along the border in what is uh, now Ontario and where I live, New Brunswick, uh, they did launch a series of border raids, uh, but they never, as I say, created a popular uprising against the the, the British crown. Um, The Fenians, curiously enough, and I don't want to to give too much weight to this, uh, but they did play a small role in leading New Brunswick into confederations. The confederation movement in the 1860s didn't have popular, tremendous popular support, um, and New Brunswick was on the fence. Should it join confederation? Should it not join confederation? Uh, and it, in fact, it's the only province to have held an election on the issue, and voters uh, rejected confederation. But at that point, the Fenians launched a border raid Uh, And it did strike a lot of uh, fear into the hearts and minds. Oh my gosh, maybe we do need the protection of a larger political unit in British North America, this thing that's to be called Canada. Again, I don't want to put too much weight on on the Fenians leading to confederation, uh, but it did play a small role in one part in 1866 in helping to convince people that maybe confederation did make sense. Mm. 
so let's move on now to the modern era. And we do, of course, need to talk about the world wars. But Ontario cyclists, um, actually, his, his Twitter handle is Ontario Eric, asks, why do Canada's contributions to World War II and World War I so often get overlooked? What's your take on that? And whether you think that they do get overlooked? Yeah, that's precisely the question I would ask uh, Ontario Eric, uh, or Cyclist Eric. Uh, overlooked by who? Certainly not in Canada. Uh, there is a lot of emphasis on, on World War I um, and Canada's remarkable contributions uh, to that tragedy of the 20th century. Um, and anniversaries are marked, you know, the anniversary of uh, the end of the war, the anniversary of the beginning of the war, the anniversary of Passchendaele. These, these, these dates are marked. Um, Likewise, World War II, Canada's contribution was enormous, and it was indispensable to the war effort um, from really 1939 to the very end, 1945, Canada participated uh, fully, uh, and its industrial capacity, its food capacity, its financial capacity were essential to Great Britain. But now if Eric's talking about, if cyclist Eric or Ontario Eric is talking about get overlooked in Great Britain, then I think the case can be made. Mm -hmm. uh, because Canada is often this forgettable place. We, it's easy to forget about uh, about Canada. Um, and if you read the, the large histories of World War One, written by uh, a British historian, or a large history of World War Two, again, written by uh, a British historian, then the focus tends to be on uh, Great Britain, the Allies, and the United States. Uh, Canada gets lumped in with the Allies. Uh, but as I say, in Canada, it's not forgotten. Mm. Indeed, there's the National War Museum, uh, a remarkable museum. And I encourage uh, Cyclist Eric to, you know, if you're in that neck of the woods, check it out. What are some of the standout moments then in the Canadian memory of those two world wars? Oh, good question. I suppose for World War One, it is Vimy Ridge. We've turned that battle, which uh, was a minor battle in the overall war effort of uh, World War One, but we've turned that battle into a national symbol where Canada came of age on the battlefield, asserted its independence as a fighting force independent of Great Britain. Uh, and that these young men who died at Vimy Ridge did not die in vain, but did, as I say, achieve uh, 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 national glory for Canada. Again, that's the use and abuse of history, turning this, this event into something that it wasn't, uh, reinventing it after the fact. Uh, uh, but today there is, in, in, in France, the Vimy Memorial, which is a remarkable site as well. Um, for World War II, I suppose, well, there was the tragedy of Dieppe. Uh, it was an early attempt to uh, attack France, which was, of course, heavily fortified, uh, to attack France uh, and then to quickly leave. Uh, it was never an attempt to attack, hold, liberate, uh, but it was a disaster. It was a disaster, and the Canadians were, in many ways, sent to their slaughter. 
Um, and we've been talking about well, who was responsible for that, uh, who sent the Canadians to die, and there's no single answer. I mean, Lord Mountbatten's name comes up, but it wasn't just Lord Mountbatten. Uh, Canadians were very anxious to get into the into the fight. Um, there was a joke uh, that all the Canadian soldiers stationed in Great Britain, more babies were being born than men were being killed as a result of all these Canadian soldiers being stationed in Great Britain. But my point is that... Um, Canadians remember certainly uh, Dieppe, the tragedy of Dieppe. Uh, they remember D-Day and, and the participation at D-Day, the liberation of Holland. Uh, Canadian forces were key to the liberation of Holland. And to this day, uh, Holland still sends Canada tulip bulbs uh, as, as, as a way of saying thank you for liberating us. And although I think it's getting a little bit less common, certainly over the course of the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, when young Canadians went backpacking, you know, the obligatory backpacking through Europe and they put the Canadian flag on their knapsack. But the people of Holland would, oh, Canada, we love Canada. They would still have this historical memory of having been liberated by Canadian soldiers. I'm not sure if that's still true, uh, but maybe it is. Uh, so maybe if cyclist Eric goes on a cycling trip through Holland, he should put a flag on his back and... Uh, He's got and, a big uh, to-do list now. Um, I do have a big to-do list for cyclist Eric. <laughs> so Richard Jones asks about a specific moment in the First World War, um, the Halifax explosion of 1917, which, if I'm right, at the time was the biggest explosion that there'd ever been in the world. Yeah, apparently it was the largest human-made explosion uh, prior to uh, the atomic weapons. Um it was a devastating tragedy. December 6, 1917, two ships collide in the Halifax Harbour, one ammunition ship. Uh, the resulting explosion killed uh, 2,000 people, uh, left 9,000 people injured, maimed, blinded, displaced 25,000 people. And remember, the population of Halifax at this point is 50,000. That's an enormous displacement of people. Um, there was a massive relief effort. People literally from around the world gave money uh, from as far away as Australia, Great Britain, uh, New Zealand. Canadians sent a trainload after trainload after trainload of supplies into Halifax. And it's kind of cool. Uh, I have friends in Halifax uh, and they have a house and they proudly point out that uh, part of their house is built with Douglas fir. Well, Douglas fir does not grow in Halifax and Nova Scotia. It grows in British Columbia. But in the relief effort, British Columbia sent trainload after trainload of, of building supplies, these great Douglas fir. Uh, so there's that kind of quirky or, or neat little historical connection. So Sam Redhead asks, from your perspective, how does Canada's relationship with Indigenous peoples, or how has Canada's relationship with Indigenous peoples compared with other places? And um, Victoria uh, DeCapua Campbell and also Sam Redhead both wanted to know more about the residential school system, which uh, perhaps you can explain, and other kind of issues to do with um, Indigenous people in, in a more contemporary context, the 20th century. So also there's the 60s scoop they mentioned. What can you tell us about those? So the first question, um, how does Canada's history, its colonial relationship with Indigenous peoples compare to other countries? Uh, it's very similar in many ways. We see this pattern unfolding in Australia. We see this pattern unfolding in New Zealand. Uh, we see the pattern unfolding in the United States. 
where Europe went, uh, there was a disease which decimated indigenous peoples, there was warfare and conflict, uh, and there was legal dispossession and de facto dispossession over time. Um, I don't think Canada's was uh, any worse or, or any better. I, I think the story of, of Europe's expansion across the globe did have these historical realities that we are now trying to contend with. Um, and I was talking to an Australian colleague a few weeks ago, and we were stunned at just how similar the story was, not in to the detail, but just in the overall pattern, how similar the story was uh, between Australian quote-unquote discovery, exploration and settlement, and how similar it was in, in, in what is now Canada. The next part of the question was about the residential school system, which again, school. I think people might not know what yeah. that is or anything about it. Fair enough. It's much in the news, and I'm not surprised that question is asked because we're talking a lot about it. Um, certainly since the discovery a few weeks ago of 215 children buried uh, at a residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia, we've known for a very long time that children did die at these schools. And indeed, when I lecture on, on residential schools, I always show a picture of a residential school. And in that picture, you can see a graveyard. And I ask my students to think, what school do you know of that had a graveyard next to it. They were established in the mid-19th century, then they were called industrial schools. After Confederation, after 1867, uh, they were called residential schools where indigenous children would live in residence. They were uh, run by the churches, primarily the Catholic church, but not only the Catholic church, the Anglican church also had residential schools. So they were run by the churches, uh, but paid for by the federal government. Uh, they were, uh, often in remote places, uh, they were ill-equipped, uh, they were cold, uh, they were uh, inefficient uh, places in terms of heating and, and, and ventilation and, and amenities. These were not what we would think of as a modern school in any shape or form. As I say, these were uh, remote poorly equipped, poorly ventilated buildings. Uh, and the teachers, uh, some of them may have been kind, some of them may have been well-meaning, but there is no question. Some of them were pedophiles, uh, some of them were pederasts, rapists. There was untold uh, abuse, physical, psychological, uh, and sexual. We know that. And, and this system, which began in the 19th century, did, and it was designed to assimilate uh, indigenous children, designed to assimilate them, to give them the skills, the language necessary to to go forward. But again, they were uh, very uh, poor uh, excuses for schools. But a few years ago, the federal government commissioned the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to find out what actually happened um, at these schools. And uh, it issued its report in 2015, the TRC, the Tooth and Reconciliation uh, Report. It made 92 calls to action. Um, and the report was, was, was pretty damning, no question. Uh, 
these were sites of cultural genocide. The report did say these were sites of cultural genocide, the residential schools. Uh, this was a program designed to wipe out or eradicate Indigenous uh, culture. How do you do that? Well, you do it with the children. They created a remarkable archive, uh, which would be available for future researchers um, going forward. Uh, but they did reference the fact that upwards of 3,000 to 6,000 children died at these schools, which is, of course, utterly disproportionate to children at other schools. Uh, they were buried uh, not entirely, but for the most part in unmarked graves. Um, death certificates weren't even kept. So we've known uh, that upwards of 3,000 to 6,000 children did die at the schools from exposure, from accident, from violence, from suicide, uh, from tuberculosis. At, at a loss to words to describe the residential school system it was just heartbreaking. So the other thing I wanted to touch on there that Sam um, Redhead asked about was the 60s scoop. What does he mean by that phrase? Oh, excellent question. In the 1950s and 1960s, the residential school program was beginning to be phased out. It wasn't closed entirely, but it was beginning to be phased out. Um, but the federal government still believed there was a problem on, on the, the reserves, that the, one of the problems was poverty, was social dislocation was potentially violence. So they would go in and literally take the children. Uh, and it's a reference to a woman who said, my child was scooped from my arms. Uh, there was no consent. The children were taken. Um, and they ended up, uh, some were adopted were put into foster care, were adopted, or were institutionalized. Uh, at one point in the 1960s in British Columbia, uh, Aboriginal children or Indigenous children represented about 1% of, of, of children in the province, but yet represented 34% in the, in, in the system of care, adopting, foster care, institutionalization. Well, uh, like uh, the residential school system, there has been an inquiry uh, into what happened, how this was allowed to happen, uh, and there has been compensation paid uh, and apologies have been issued at both the federal level and at the level of provinces. I believe Manitoba and Saskatchewan have issued apologies. And uh, again, talking about reconciliation, uh, Manitoba and Saskatchewan have included the story of the 60 Scoop in their school curricula. So we've covered a lot of ground here and I've got some slightly more random questions. So one of them is from Victoria DiCaprio Campbell, again, who asks about the history of the um, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. You know, they're a symbol of, of Canada, aren't they, that's exported across the globe. So what do we actually know about their history? Well, we know a lot about their history. Uh, they were the first national police force. They were the Northwest Mounted Police. Uh, they later became the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, and they police uh, literally from one end of the country to the other. Um, not so much in cities because, of course, they'll have municipal police forces. But as you point out, the Royal Canadian RCMP are this global symbol. Everyone recognizes that red tunic and that distinctive hat, uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police on their horses. Um, 
and it is easily recognizable. And it's like um, the maple leaf or maple syrup. It's one of those symbols that is instantly uh, Canadian. You just talked about the maple leaf there. So um, Rach74 on Instagram did ask, when and why did the maple leaf start to be used as the symbol of Canada? And that chimes with something that people search for online, which is about the history of the Canadian flag. Well, that's such a great search. Um, okay, well, the maple leaf is a, is a long symbol of Canada. Actually, it was first used by French Canadians in the, in, in the 1830s, I believe. They adopted the maple leaf as a symbol of, of French Canada. And then over time, uh, English Canadians uh, adopted the maple leaf as well. And into the 20th century, athletes would compete with a maple leaf on their chest. Um, there were bad poems written, you know, ode to the maple leaf. <laughs> there were uh, all sorts of cultural references to the maple leaf. Uh, it just emerged organically as this symbol of Canada, first of French Canada, uh, but then later of Canada writ large. Um, in the 1960s, uh, there was a movement, as you say, to have a new flag. The former Canadian flag was the Red Ensign. And some of you, your listeners may know the Red Ensign. It had the Union Jack and it had the Canadian coat of arms. Um, but uh, it was so similar to so many other flags, right? I mean, yes, the coat of arms was uniquely Canadian, but the red, but the Union Jack with a coat of arms made it indistinguishable from so many other flags. The Prime Minister at the time, Lester B. Pearson, recalled once flying into London and looking down and seeing a ship and not able to recognize the Canadian red ensign from the red ensign of, of the merchant, the British merchant marine. So he said, this is, we need a new flag, he said. So he promised uh, that in his first term of office that Canada would get a new flag. It was part of Canada's decolonization, Canada's move away from the British Empire, becoming less British. Um, it was also a response to the crisis of Quebec nationalism. Clearly, French Canadians are not going to be able to see themselves in the Union Jack. Uh, and so there was the sense that we needed a new flag. But what would that flag be? So Lester Pearson said, okay, he'll strike a committee and make the make it the committee's problem. And the committee considered some 6,000 different designs, everything from the beaver to the codfish to uh, sheaves of wheat. What's really interesting too is that Indigenous people said this flag should include an Indigenous symbol, it should include maybe a totem pole, uh, or it should include an igloo or a teepee, which is really kind of cool because they're saying, look, this is our country. It became, although the flag debate was very divisive, and it was so interesting to me about the flag debate 1963-1964, what's so interesting to me about the flag debate, it was just not, not a spontaneous, we want a new flag. It was in many ways elite driven by the prime minister down, uh, but he recognized that if Canada is going to work, it had to find a new symbol which everyone could see themselves in, French Canadians. But I think in this instance, Pearson was right. Um, my mother likes to joke, who's, she's 93, she likes to joke uh, that you think the debate over same-sex marriage was divisive, Donald? I remember the flag debate. That was a divisive debate. Um, and I'm sure it was. But so interesting, too, is that once that flag on February 15th, 1965, flew up the flagpole for the first time, uh, there was this remarkable consensus. And that, 
uh, that that was the Canadian flag. Um, and there's been no talk of changing it since. So I think for our final question, we've got quite a lighthearted one, uh, which is just something that people search for online. And as we know, people love food online. And one of the things people search for is the history of Canadian food. So I think to finish us off, can you give us some information about that? History of Canadian food. Well, I don't think we have a Canadian cuisine like we have a French cuisine or an Italian cuisine, which is instant, like instantly recognizable. Um, but we do have some great Canadian dishes. Uh, for example, we have poutine, the great Canadian dish. Uh, and for your listeners who don't know what poutine is, let me enlighten you. Uh, poutine was invented in Quebec in the 1950s, but over time it has now become a national dish, which Quebecers sometimes get jealous about. No, that's our food. Uh, but it's become a national dish. Poutine are French fries with cheese curds smothered in a rich, dark gravy. Uh, and it Lovely. is delicious. Uh, and college students uh, are convinced that poutine is the perfect hangover cure. I'm not convinced of that. There's all sorts of regional variations. You know, do you like your sauce hotter? Do you like your sauce browner? Do you like your sauce with Indian spices mixed in with it? Uh, Caribbean spices mixed in with it. So it's become also a multicultural dish. Uh, when Justin Trudeau first met uh, Barack Obama, there was a state dinner uh, at the White House uh, for, for Justin Trudeau. Uh, and the White House chef served poutine <laughs> because it's this instantly recognizable Canadian dish. And I think it's a perfect Canadian dish because, again, it has Quebec, it has English Canada, but it can be made multicultural. So, yeah, if you ever come to Canada, check out uh, some poutine. I'll be sure to do so. Um, thank you so much for this enlightening tour through Canadian history um, and I'm sure that everybody who's listened will be get, able to go away and um, delve much deeper into these topics so thank you very much Listen, it's been my pleasure, it's been great fun, thank you for having me Ellie That was Donald Wright, his book Canada, A Very Short Introduction is available now published by Oxford University Press Thanks for listening This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when we'll be delving into the history of UFOs. UFOs.